get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the And Campaign and the Crux and the Call. Guess what, folks? I have Justin with me this week. How are you, Justin? I'm good, man. I appreciate you holding it down while I was gone. As y'all may know, I had a uh, my third son, a crew uh, Isaiah Gibney, a few weeks back. So we are, are blessed for that. And uh, I'm happy to be back on the Church Politics Podcast, man. Beautiful, baby boy. Congratulations to you. We're, we're glad to have you back, but uh, more glad to have a, a third Gibney boy in the world. Yeah, uh, it, it's been great. My my older two sons, which aren't that old, they're five and three, are really excited about it. And so uh, it's just been a blessing, man. There's something that children do uh, to you uh, that just uh, gives you a perspective. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be back, but glad to uh, have another member of the family. That, that's good, man. You catch game two of the finals? Sadly, I didn't catch the game two of the final. Understandable. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> I got a lot going on, a lot of work to do as well. So I, I've been uh, just grinding, man. Yeah, I've just been laughing at, you know, and this isn't uncommon, but, you know, after game one, it was the Raptors are going to destroy the Warriors. The legacy's over. And now after last night's game, it's like, oh, Warriors in five. This thing is over. You know what we'll see. I think it might be a little, little more complicated. Yeah, it's amazing how the narratives change after uh, after a game. You know, the, yeah. they can pretty much do a, a one eighty. But I tell you, with these three day breaks between games, they got to have something to talk about. So it'll be exciting to see the series continue. But Justin, we have quite a bit to talk about. It's been a while since we've done sort of a, a, a current events episode, and so let's jump into it. I mean, I think it's been. Really interesting to see the abortion conversation take up so much space in our politics. Typically, parties have tried to put it sort of on the second tier of issues, at least in terms of the public conversation, because both parties have been pretty wary of of how the politics works out for them. But it it looks like the calculus is changing. One of the ways it's changing, and I, I wrote about this for The Atlantic last week, is we now... Uh, abortion politics is kind of stuck in this cycle where not only are the policy objectives really aggressive and where one party has the power to enforce their will, they're going all the way. So we've talked about Virginia and New York on this show just last week. Illinois passed what they're celebrating as a even more liberal abortion bill in Illinois, making Illinois, the governor said, the state for reproductive freedom. And then, of course, we saw in Alabama and in Missouri and in Louisiana, aggressive pro-life bills that are limiting the right to an abortion as limited as up to six weeks. What's happening, Justin, and I'd love your, your thoughts on this, What I'm seeing is that, yes, there's the policy goal, but this is really about showing the other side how much power you have and rubbing it in to the extent that you can. So we know that Cuomo passed his bill, signed it and, you know, decided to light up a cultural icon 
Pink, uh, the Empire State Building in, in Pink in New York. In Alabama, I tell the story of the lieutenant governor who was presiding over the Alabama Senate, not only ramrodding the bill, an amendment through that would take out the, uh, the exception for rape and incest, but he did so without even allowing for a roll call vote and actually ignoring the pleas of his Democratic colleagues, literally acting as if they didn't exist. And so this is getting really toxic, not just obviously the policies and not just the state of the, the, the legal state of where we are. It's getting toxic in terms of the political demagoguery and incivility and norm breaking that folks are willing to use and leverage to get their way. Justin, as you've seen the last few months play out, uh, and especially the last couple of weeks, how have you been thinking about you know the state of abortion politics in this country? Yeah, it's been on me heavy. Uh, as you know, Georgia passed their own heartbeat bill, and now you have several production companies, Disney, Netflix, right. and so on, talking about boycott of the state. And so these are real issues that at this point could affect economic issues. I would warn Christians, and we talked about this in the Atlanta chapter uh, meeting last week, you can't base your opinion on abortion off the economics of it. I think think that's a pretty bad way to go. But to your point, the problem we see here is as the discourse gets more and more toxic, we get further and further away from what the best policy actually is, right? That's not what we're not having a good faith and thoughtful debate about what the best policy is. It's more of this one-upsmanship. And I thought the article that you wrote in The Atlantic was awesome. I got a lot of comments about how, how well-written and thoughtful it was. And here's, here's one of the, the quotes that stuck out to me. You say this, Michael. You say, abortion politics is no longer about policy wins, but about establishing dominance. This is why Governor Andrew Como could not be satisfied with the passage of the Reproductive Health Act which eliminated several restrictions on the procedure, but instead had to light up the Empire State Building, as you said before, pink, to declare that abortion rights were now creedal in New York. This dynamic was also evident in Alabama, where the people in power hold the opposite position on abortion as their counterparts in New York. Again, it's this, it's this establishing dominance thing where you have both sides have activists who are really, really serious about the issue, and it seems like those are the ones who are controlling the debate instead of the people controlling the debate. And that's who the politicians are responding to. I think it's unfortunate. We need to get to what the best policy is. Now, I'll say this as far as Christians go. The two most prominent narratives from what I can tell when it comes to abortion are reductive. I don't think they really deal with the reality of this very serious issue. On one end, you have the conservative end. You have a lot of people that just say, hey, don't do it. That's it. Uh, it shouldn't happen. It should never happen. And, and that's the end of the conversation. But that's not necessarily the end of the conversation. You have to take into consideration. I think all Christians should take into consideration women in crisis situations and all the things that they go through, all the things that someone might go through when they have no support, no one around them to support them, don't know how they would feed the child or whatever. The AND campaign is a full life, comprehensive pro-life uh, organization. However, those are things that you do have to take into consideration. On the other side, you have this narrative where it's my body, my choice. And the way that that is reductive on the left is it's the assumption where you completely erase the life of the child as if it just doesn't even exist. It's not even part of the analysis at all. That is tough to deal with. 
as Christians, I think we have to deal with that in a more thoughtful manner and take both of those things into consideration. And I don't think that's always the case. Something else that bothers me about the abortion discussion is that many of the people that I see, at least in my social media timeline, uh, and these are Christians and, and otherwise, seem to be basing their arguments on the faults and the lack of credibility of their political opponents. Right. So sometimes you see their entire argument seems to hedge on whether or not their political opponents have good motives and whether or not they have credible political history. So on the left, you see people saying that Republicans don't really care about the unborn, uh, that all they want to do is control women. I saw a meme recently that said white evangelicals didn't care about life during slavery. Now, these things might be true in some cases, but it has nothing to do with whether abortion is right or wrong. Our opinion on abortion should be completely separate and independent from how we feel about our political opponents. Whether Republicans or Democrats are bad people has nothing to do with whether abortion is right or wrong. Their motives have nothing to do with whether abortion is right or wrong. This is a moral question. And so since this is a moral question, it has to be answered as a matter of truth and principles. If President Trump says that the square root of nine is three, I can't disagree with him just because he's corrupt and incompetent. My analysis actually has nothing to do with him. It's about the truth of the statement. The abortion conversation is more complicated than that. But here's my point. My point is that you have to decide on the moral question without regard for who's taking what side. Those things can be considered when you strategize or whatever. But when you make your initial decision on whether it's right or wrong, that's not something that, that should have anything to do with your political opposition. And I'm not sure that people have answered that initial moral question before going into the policy and strategy side of it, right? The politics don't need to be a part of that initial decision. We have to stop putting political beefs and political calculations in front of the moral question. Uh, this is something that you need to sit down with your Bible, sit down with your pastor, sit down with some thoughtful, convictional friends who are intellectually honest and think through before you get to the policy conversation. Because and I'm not sure that a lot of people are doing that based on their their commentary on social media and elsewhere. Yeah. So, right. So we talk in the abstract quite a bit and it's commonly embraced that, you know, partisan identity is taking up too much space, that people are more guided by partisan affiliation and thinking through issues. But it's really hard to apply that abstract analysis to both specific circumstances and then specific circumstances in your own life. But one way you could do that is if when you're confronted with this issue, if your primary response is, you know, I don't trust the Republicans or or I don't trust the Democrats. And so therefore, <laughs> like that's a that's a good indication that partisan thinking is really framing the way you approach the issue. Exactly. And, it, and it's not to say that once you say, OK, abortion is wrong. Oh, I have to agree with the Republicans now. That's right. not what that means. But you do need to answer that question first before you go into what policy is best. Right. Yeah, and and yeah. people just aren't doing that. And, you know, I'd say, Justin, public polling has been really steady over the last you know decade, decade and a half. And basically what we know is that we have about 30 percent of Americans that are on the extremes of this issue on either side. And that split up pretty evenly. And then we have this 60 to 70 percent of Americans that are somewhere in the middle that are 
insufficiently, quote unquote, you know, shaped by what the elites and the gatekeepers tell them they have to think. And they think abortion is both a moral issue. A Many would say it's, it's not a, a good thing. It's an evil and yet want to have some level of legality. Now, just because most people think it doesn't mean they have the right position. But what's striking to me, Justin, is how little our political conversation reflects the amount of moral nuance and policy nuance that the American people have. And that shows, you know, that suggests to me a real inequity, a real imbalance a real failure of the democratic process that we don't have. We no longer have that kind of representation. We've seen the 2020 candidates, obviously on both sides, you know, President Trump has been driving a lot of this on, on the Republican side, though, you know, it's, it's really interesting to note that he felt it necessary to tweet out his support for exceptions for rape and incest, contrary to Alabama. But then on the left, we see, Uh, candidates, even some who have been more centrist or, quote, middle of the road on this issue, really going to the left, especially over the last few weeks. So uh, almost all of them are now promising federal legislation to codify Roe. Basically, what that means is they'd support legislation that would never pass, right? This is all rhetorical uh, at this point. No one's going to pass this bill through the Senate in the next two to four years. But they're saying they'll pass legislation that would basically take away all state restrictions on abortion by federal law, which would be a pretty aggressive step to to say the least. Probably (laughs) unconstitutional. Probably, probably there are there are some there are some issues there. I'm not sure that there is the incentive structure in either party right now for the candidates to reflect the will of the people, which is a uh, should be a troubling thing for those who care about the the future of of politics in this country. Yeah, I, I would just uh, I would just say this that as as Christians, if we really care about this issue, then it's worth having a real intellectually honest conversation about it. And when you address it on social media, which isn't always the best place to do it, but if you're going to address it, please place somewhere in your uh, in your comment where you stand on the moral question, because people need to hear that. I saw a couple articles that were going around in the more modernist Christian circles, and the article was basically justifying uh, abortion simply based on the fact that white evangelicals have been overly political about the issue. Again, I'm, and I'm repeating myself again, that has nothing to do with whether it's right or wrong. Uh, and, and so make sure that we're clear on that as we go into the policy question. Now, Michael, one of the things that you and I saw this weekend, I think I guess HBO and Vice News did an interview with Louisiana Democrat, uh, pro-life Democrat uh, Katrina Jackson, who sponsored Louisiana's abortion uh, heartbeat bill. Uh, now, that heartbeat bill was signed into law by Democratic governor. This is a little little different. Uh, Louisiana is a little different than other states in a lot of different ways. But Louisiana Democratic governor John Bell Edwards signed it into law, I think, yesterday or the day before. Now, the law would prohibit abortions after a heartbeat is detected in the baby. The first thing that I noticed about this interview by Vice News was the interviewer's look of 
utter disbelief when Representative Jackson explained that she didn't think abortion was a civil rights issue, but that she was progressive on a lot of other issues like criminal justice and poverty, which shouldn't really be that big of a deal. But again, as the end campaign talks about a lot, there's this false dichotomy that really says if you are pro-life, then you have to take the conservative position on every other issue. And it's, it's just not true. And not to attack the interviewer, because I think the fact that someone could be pro-life and progressive on other issues would be a surprise to a lot of people who are living in that kind of cosmopolitan bubble. But it does demonstrate a lack of knowledge of history, because throughout history, there have been several progressives, political progressives that have taken a pro-life stance. So, so whether you're talking about Dorothy Day, you're talking about Fannie Lou Hamer or others. But it also shows a, a really being out of touch the professional class being out of touch of where a lot of black Christians are on that issue and how we think about that issue. A lot of black Christians, especially in the Democratic Party, don't make it the only issue, but it's still an issue that that we care a lot about. And a lot of folks just seem to be completely oblivious to that. The other thing that hit me about this interview that got me about this interview was that the interviewer commented that uh, Representative Jackson was the best or perfect unicorn for the pro-life movement because she was black and a Democrat, almost as if Representative Jackson was being disingenuous. There's this narrative going around that it's almost as if secular progressivism is assumed to be the natural position of black Americans. And the first thing that I will say to that is black America isn't a monolith, nor should it be. Uh, Next, I would say that just like Uh, evangelicalism has mirrored some of the worst elements of Western culture. Secular progressivism as an ideology is a very Western European thought in origin. That's just a fact of the matter. You know, as the left tries to get African-Americans to fully identify with that ideology, the far left, I should say, I see a lot of people pushing the narrative that secular progressivism is the authentic black position. But the truth is there's not any historical basis for that proposition. And this is coming from someone who considers himself more of a classic progressive. I'm not a secular progressive on a lot of the social issues. If we look at history, that's just the way that it is. There is nothing wrong with embracing uh, European thought as a a non-white person, if that's what you think is right. But you can't try to pretend that secular progressivism is a black position if there was one. Uh, That's just not defensible. And so I think there needs to be some pushback because it's almost some people are almost saying if you don't agree with the pro-choice position, then somehow you're not authentically black. And that's just there's just no historical basis or any other basis for that. Yeah. And it's interesting to have this be something that Vice felt comfortable publishing, not the whole interview, but but this idea of reducing I mean, it's her bill. She's been working on these on these issues for a long time. And like you said, Justin, is not a rarity. And she would be less of a rarity if there weren't gatekeepers and decision makers who took a, a lot of it on themselves and make sure that there weren't more elected officials like Katrina Jackson, making sure the black and brown folks who were pro-life never even got the chance to run in the Democratic Party or with the funding support of their organizations that are ostensibly about increasing representation and inclusion in government. And so and then to sort of frame Katrina Jackson as this as a messaging unicorn, as opposed to someone who just shepherded legislation through politically divided state is, to to use a word, problematic. It's just interesting the kinds of voices that are held up to be representative and the kinds of voices that are sort of uh, 
posed to be isolated or embattled. <laughs> you know, that's not the story I'll, here. I'll be honest with you, Michael. I, I think that conservatives can be very condescending to African-Americans, but they're not the only ones. And there's a history of progressives being condescending to African-Americans. I was reading a speech by Fred, Frederick Douglass for a talk that I'm giving in the next uh, month or so. And he was saying that within the abolition movement, that a lot of the white progressives came to the point where they didn't think that he and other African-Americans were smart enough to understand the strategy that was behind abolition. We're talking <laughs> about Frederick Douglass here and you have progressives saying, yeah, we want to help you out. But you don't quite understand what's needed in this situation, even though you've been a slave, you got out of slavery and now you're lecturing people all over the country. You just don't quite understand. And, and I felt uh -huh. that same type of condescension, even though the interviewer was black. But what she was expressing was very much kind of the general progressive point of view when it comes to African-Americans who are more traditional on social issues. Uh, and so th there's nothing new about that. But I think you're going to find people getting really sick of that kind of, you know, being condescending in that regard. People like Representative Katrina Jackson know exactly what they're doing. She knows exactly what she believes. And I'm just happy to see her stand up. We haven't done a church uh, politics, uh, uh, church folk champ in a while, but I would like to make her my church folk champ just for standing up for what she believes and not backing down, especially at a time where there are very few black Democrats or otherwise who are willing to say, hey, there are a lot of people in my community who are pro-life or who take these more traditional stances on social issues. And I'm going to represent them regardless of what the National Party or the establishment wants me to do. That is tough, a very tough position to take. And I just appreciate her for doing that. All right. Well, when we get back from a quick break, we're going to talk about President Trump's visit to the UK. And actually, we're going to return to a theme Justin just raised. We'll get to that after the break. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back with the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, after a few historic weeks in British politics, Prime Minister Theresa May announcing that she would step down after uh, not being able to get Parliament to sign off on a Brexit deal. Donald Trump, in his long-awaited, long-postponed trip to the UK, arrives this week. And obviously, I think, you know, it's a delicate time for him to be making this trip. For some forces, it'll be viewed as a as a victory lap that Trump has outlasted May, just as he's outlasted the the center right in this country in America. As Trump was landing in the UK, he was tweeting out insults. London's mayor, who, in all fairness, wrote an op-ed a couple days ago with some unkind and critical things to say of President Trump. So there's a there's a feud there. And then, of course, we're just after the European Parliament elections, which further showed kind of a hollowing out of the center uh, and this rise of populist sort of nationalist fervor in much of the West. Just how do you think President Trump's going to do on this trip? And just what do you think of the the, the really uh, interesting timing here coinciding with 
the UK having to kick off a new election for the next, uh, well, not a new election. The Conservative Party will have to choose its its leader, and then there will be a decision about whether whether there will be a, an election after that. Yeah. Uh, the, the first thing I'll say is everyone has reason to be nervous uh, when Trump travels overseas for important business. Uh, because, as you know, he's cavalier, <laughs> he's unprepared, and he's undisciplined. Brexit could have very serious economic consequences, not only for the UK, but for the world economy. Trump going over there and being so Trumpian and then getting into it with L- London's mayor and all that stuff just isn't helpful at a time where there needs to be le- leadership. And the UK really needs the United States to have its back as it goes into these conversations. As I always say, I mean, this is pretty much a broken record. We have a president who doesn't prepare for these type of uh, meetings, who can get up in front of everybody and say anything. So even if the UK leaders aren't saying it, they have to be somewhat nervous about what he might do because you never know what he might do or say because he doesn't know what he might do or say. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little bit nervous about it. Hopefully he doesn't cause any big issues, but I'm really keeping an eye on on what's going to happen with the conservative party over there, on what's going to happen with Brexit. This has been a long drawn out conversation and back and forth that there's really no uh, solution to, even though, you know, you've seen some deadlines pass. When this will come to an end, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm, I'm going to be keeping my eye and listening to the experts on what they think is going to happen. You know, I'm interested to see if Trump tries to put his thumb on the scale of the Tories uh, debate about who will be their next prime minister there are some ties that Trump folks have with Boris Johnson. Uh, many believe Boris Johnson is kind of the, the Trump of the UK. Or another sort of parallel would be Nigel Farage. Now, Nigel has his own party, but it'll be interesting to see if Trump tries to use his visit to prop up Nigel in this sort of new phase of the Brexit debate. I'm with, you know, I hope the trip is successful for American interests. Uh, I hope that the special relationship doesn't get too special <laughs> in terms of just, you know, nonsense happening. But we'll we'll have to see. I, I know people have been really rough on Theresa May, and I do think she was handed the position of prime minister at a time when no one else wanted the job. David Cameron had his referendum idea had failed, and now it was Theresa May's job to sort of clean up the mess. I did feel a, a level of human sympathy uh, for her as she announced her resignation and as she as she cried a bit. I could only imagine what it must be like to go through that ordeal and then know that you have Donald Trump mm-hmm. coming in a week. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how how the how the trip plays out. People are fond of Trump's predecessor in the UK, uh, especially members of the royal family, mm-hmm. and so you know. Th- th- kinds of jealousies and, you know, feuds uh, might express themselves over the course of this trip as well. Yeah, we, we certainly will find out. So keep your eye on it. it. It not only has consequences, as we said, for the UK, but possibly the world economy and, and how the European Union moves forward. I think the, the last topic we wanted to cover is, you know, to go back to something you said, Justin, at the end of the segment on Katrina uh, Jackson, uh, so there was this uh, move on summit with many of the Democratic candidates, and they were supposed to be sharing their big idea. So move on sort of asked, you know, what's what's the big idea that's driving your campaign, like an interesting policy proposal. 
And uh, Senator Kamala Harris was on stage talking with Queen Jean-Pierre, who's an executive at MoveOn. And as they're talking, the video is pretty insane and, and troubling, really. Uh, this protester, uh, this animal rights protester, this white guy with a man bun, kind of like what you might imagine, like a vegan, <laughs> uh, like Bay Area <laughs> animal rights protester might look like comes up on stage, walks up to Senator Harris going around several other folks on stage and just takes the mic from her hand uh, in order to promote his message. I mean, it's he just pops up on stage. And of course, you know, in this day and age, you got to be, well, apparently he wasn't too worried about the security measures, but I think everyone watching was a bit worried. I know I was. And then he was escorted off. This gentleman defended his actions, said that it was uh, he, he had considered all of the dynamics, but it was really important to apparently have his message be heard. And the conversation around this has just been, uh, you know, fascinating, Justin. Uh, before I toss it to you, you know, it's been interesting when activist fervor is appreciated and when it's not. So there was a whole bunch of praise for protesters throwing milkshakes uh, in the UK at uh, Brexit supporters. There's been a whole lot of uh, support for glitter bombing and these kinds of things. But rightly in this case, uh, and I think it would have been the right approach to those cases, this danger of having people think that it is an enlightened thing to do, uh, to walk up on stage and physically impose oneself on a public official uh, was was viewed as uh, an intimidation tactic and as a real dumb move and as really uncivil. So, Justin, what, what do you think the reaction of this tells us about the state of activism and protest uh, and how people are thinking about it? I think it? you said it. Uh, we like when that happens to people who we're against, when it happens to our political opposition. Uh, but if it happens to some somebody we sympathize with, then it's the worst thing in, in the world. And, and that's what we're seeing right now. I think it's trash either way. You don't have to disrespect people to get your point across. Well, let me say this. God bless the gadfly. God bless the activist who has a cause that they dedicate their life to. Uh, not everybody is built to do that, but we certainly need people who do that. So I want to be very clear on uh, activism is necessary. We need those advocates who put their all into just causes because uh, America would not be what it is today and would not have any chance of getting better uh, as it needs to without those people. So I want to be clear about that. But something activists need to realize is that sometimes in their vitriol and in their antics, they actually do the cause and the people that they're fighting for an injustice. Because many times when they go overboard and when they do things that are completely uncivil and disrespectful, they run off potential allies. At the end of the day, a lot of the vitriol in general is about misrepresentations and poor representations coming from activists. Because when people think of the folks on the other side of the issue, they don't think of the folks at home just struggling to get by. They think of the activists. That's the face that they see. Right. I see that you see the face of the people who are up, you know, shouting and doing whatever when you think about an issue. Now, that's not how we should think about an issue. But if you keep that in mind right. as an activist, that the people that you're trying to persuade are seeing you as the representative, 
and not necessarily the people who you're representing, then you might go about it in a different way. And I think sometimes that's what needs to happen because you do damage to your cause when you don't have a level of discipline and and just aspiration, right? In in your tone and posture. And that happens way too often. And it needs to be thought about because you are hurting in many cases, again, the people, the causes and people that you are representing. It's just counterproductive. And I, I think you see in this instance, it was counterproductive. That was very disrespectful to Senator Harris. Um, hate that it had to happen. I'm glad that people got up there and, and stopped it as soon as possible. Just not a good representation of, of that cause, not which isn't necessarily the cause that, I, that I'm huge on. But if you want people to be persuaded, right, we have a republic where you try to re- persuade people to your side. Acting mm. in that way isn't the most efficient way to do it. Now, in addition to that, I, you know, I, I hear this move on big ideas uh, forum was great. I heard Elizabeth Warren did pretty good. Booker uh, did fairly well. And one of the things that was interesting to me, uh, Michael, I know I know you are uh, you have a lot of respect for uh, Hickenlooper. Apparently he went up there and this is one of the one times that you get booed on purpose. Right. right? So apparently he went yeah. up there. He went up and said, hey, socialism isn't the answer. Medicare for all isn't the answer gets booed but what he was doing was trying to make a larger statement not to the audience that was immediately in front of him but to the national audience and so he got a lot of attention from Mm. the national audience because he got booed by the folks in california so if if you're not paying a whole lot of attention you say well why would you go somewhere where you know they're going to boo you well when you got 20 something (laughs) other candidates in the race you got to do anything that might get you some attention from the people that you need to see you and that that may work out for him. He may actually get another look for some folks that just weren't paying attention to him. It shows the predicament <laughs> Joe Biden is in. You know, Hickenlooper, John Delaney did something similar in California this past week. He blasted Medicare for all and was booed for like 45 minutes straight. I think it was a similar kind of play. And the reason why Hickenlooper and Delaney could make these plays is like they're at zero or one percent in the polls. Like, all they can do is is go up like they're just trying to get a look. Uh, Joe Biden can't afford to stick large segments of the Democratic electorate in the eye because he, he's hoping at some point it's going to be his job to unify the party and bring the party together. And, you know, I think we're just beginning to see some of the potential downsides of having a robust 20 plus field. And that is you have a lot of candidates with a platform who have nothing to lose that are running just to get the chance to have uh, the American people look at them. And that's going to be, you know, that could, that could be a a sort of creative engine that could, that could, uh, that could ultimately be a benefit for the party. Or it could mean that you just have a bunch of folks tearing down whoever is in the lead in the hopes that they'll get a look. But I, I just I was fascinated by that. It was such an interesting moment. Yeah, it was. Now, the, the mayor, I think we talked about one of the last times that we were having this type of conversation that the mayor of New York has entered the race. But I haven't heard anything uh, about him. I haven't heard any any big news. And it's it's a wonder that somebody would jump in without some way to make a splash. But this is just Whew, this is going to be an interesting one, man. People, I think folks are going to start getting desperate and doing all types of things just to get, as you said, a look 
uh, from the crowd. Well, Justin, I think we're near the end. This week is going to be interesting. We'll see how the UK visit goes and revisit that uh, next week. I think we're going to see another week of conversation as as you mentioned that Louisiana has signed its bill. Illinois has signed its bill. The Illinois governor signed their bill and so I think that's going to be another big conversation. And then, you know, we'll we'll see how things continue to progress with talk of impeachment and pressure on Pelosi and seeing how Congress reacts in this really critical moment where you get the sense that there are, there's now a bunch of members of Congress who believe that this is their moment to take action. Well, is there anything that you have your eye on? Eye on this week. I think I think you named it, but I just want our audience to know that whatever happens in this next week, we will be here to keep you informed. That we appreciate you. Please share this with folks in your congregation, people, uh, other Christians, that believers that you know that uh, enjoy hitting, hearing political commentary. We appreciate y'all and keep listening. All right, folks, that's it from us. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Have a blessed week. I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame.